Amen. I went to see uh, Joe. Uh, Joe and I got breakfast yesterday, and he said, uh, he pre- pretty sure Kelly's in a race to see who gets recovered faster, because Joe just had his knee surgery a couple months ago. Uh, so far, uh, looks like Kelly's a clear winner. Clear winner. So we're thanking the Lord for that. Thank the Lord. Uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to the, the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 6. 1 Samuel, chapter 6. Uh, returning to our book, uh, our study through the book of Samuel, looking at chapter 6, and the title of my sermon this morning is, Who Can Stand Before the Lord? Who Can Stand Before the Lord? Before we get to our text this morning, as you're turning there, I want to remind you of uh, two stories from the scriptures this morning that weigh into uh, our, our text this morning. The first comes from the Old Testament, uh, from the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter Uh, chapter 5, chapter 6, what we find there is that Joshua has been handed the mantle of leadership from Moses. And the question at the beginning of Joshua is, will the Lord be with Joshua the way he was with Moses? So there we are entering into the promised land, the land that has been promised since Genesis chapter 12. And there we find God's people after Deuteronomy. And the story, the ark of Joshua, the book of Joshua, is, is focused on one thing. And it's about removing or cleansing the promised land from the Canaanites. Here they have been told that they need to, to clear out uh, the promised land. And there that because if they were to interact or, or begin to follow the religions of the people of the Canaanites, what did, what did Moses say would happen in the book of Deuteronomy? He said this, he said, they will turn your hearts from the Lord. And so the command was clear. They are to remove everything from from the Canaanites. And so what you have in the book of Joshua is a very very graphic, it's an action-oriented book in which the people of God are going from town to town clearing out the Canaanites. But not in their own power. As a matter of fact, what we find uh, in, the, uh, in the book of Joshua in chapter 6 is that the great city of Jericho falls not by the people's might, but by God's power. We see that God's power is on full display by the people merely walking around the city walls and seven times, and on the seventh time, what do they do? They, they blow a horn in praise and worship to God, and then the walls fall down. And what we find at the end of Joshua chapter 6 is that Joshua's fame from this story is spread throughout all the land. His fame is beginning to grow. They're beginning to hear of the power of Yahweh to, to level whole cities. But then what happens in chapter 7 is that the, the, the children of Israel, the covenant people of God, make their way to a much smaller, much more insignificant town called Ai. There they, they're, they're expecting to, to just walk over these people in the power of the Lord. And what happens is they're utterly defeated. Utterly defeated. And Joshua comes before the Lord and falls on his face and says, Lord, why did you even bring us across the Jordan? We would have been happy to just live over on the other side and die there than to come here and be put to open Shame. Do you remember what the Lord said to Joshua in this story? He says, the reason that you've fallen, the reason that this great army has been uh, tripped up by such a little town as Ai, is because there is sin in the camp. 
He says that, that you have lost the battle. Israel has lost the battle because they have sinned and have broken the covenant with God. You see, God had commanded they should destroy all the possessions of Jericho and not keep any of it. But one man, a man named Achan in this story, had buried in his tent some clothes, some silver, and some gold that they had found at Jericho. He, he had feasted his eyes and said, this looks good. Why, why should we destroy it? Shouldn't we just take this back? And so he takes it back and he hides it in his tent and buries it there. And this is the sole reason. This one man was the reason the mighty army of Israel lost the battle and was utterly humiliated at the battle of Ai. But that's not all that happens in that story. If you're familiar with this story, you'll know that, that, that the Lord had told him to do something to the one who sin was found with. Do you remember? What were they to do? They had to take the man and burn him. And so all of Israel gathered together, stoned Achan, and then burned him. For what? For what? For this, for, for, for breaking the covenants of God. Now you may be sitting here thinking, like, seems a bit harsh, doesn't it? Or perhaps another thought is, thank goodness that this is the Old Testament pastor. Thank goodness we are under the grace of Jesus and the blood of Jesus. Uh, and we are in New Testament times. Because that seems harsh. Let me remind you of another story. This one we find in the New Testament. This one comes to us in the book of Acts chapter 5. At the end of chapter 4, what we find is the church who has been, is a group of people who have been changed by the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and it's not only just changed their spiritual lives, it's changed their physical lives, their lives here in the present, in the flesh. And what we find is that, that their lives have been so radically changed that they are all of one heart and soul. They had everything in common. They are eradicating real physical needs, and there is no such thing as poverty within the church. They had everything in common. But in chapter 5, we find two disciples of Jesus. Don't miss this. We find two followers of Jesus at the beginning of chapter 5 who decide to sell a property that is already theirs. And what they do is they go to Peter and they, they say, well, before, before they go to Peter, they say, they, they, they talk amongst themselves, Ananias and Sapphira. They, they talk amongst themselves and they say, let's only tell the church we sold the house for this much. And so they agreed. So Ananias goes before Peter and he says, hey, we've sold the house for X when really we sold it for why. You see, they didn't really tell him the full value, but, but Peter knows he's given insight from the Lord. And Peter asked Ananias to his face, why are you lying to the Holy Spirit? And when Ananias hears these words, he falls down, dead. Then Sapphira comes to Peter a little while later and says, we sold it for X, when really they had sold it for Y. And Peter asked her, why are you testing the spirit of the Lord? And when she hears that, she falls down dead. And this story is important because this story is found at the beginning of the church movement. The book of Acts is the spread of the gospel throughout uh, the region. It's about lives being turned upside down. The church is being built. And we find this story in the beginning of that church movement. Believers and followers of Jesus lying and testing the Holy Spirit. <laughs> 
are killed by God himself. And we are the reader and uh, and the church today are left with this question. Who shall stand before the Lord? This is not just a question of the Old Testament. This is a question of the New Testament as well. The point in both of these stories and and what we find in 1 Samuel chapter 6 is that, that our God is a holy God. This means that God is unlike you and I. He's set apart wholly different, completely other than you and I. There is nothing that you and I can compare him to. He is incomparable. And before this holy God, no one can stand. That's the conclusion that we find at the end of 1 Samuel chapter 6. That the people living in Bethshemesh say at the end of the chapter... So let's begin to walk through this chapter. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 6 as we think in the back of your mind, keep the question in your mind, who can stand before the Lord? Look at it with me, 1 Samuel chapter 6, verse 1. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. Let me remind you of where we are in the story of Samuel. In chapter 4, the children of Israel are in battle with the Philistines and they lose a battle and they ask themselves this question. Why is the Lord against us? We are his people. These are his enemies. Why is he against us? And they ultimately determine that the reason they lost the battle is because they do not have the Ark of the Covenant with them. And so they send for it and bring the Ark back. And they, believe, uh, they begin to celebrate in the camp. They begin to throw a party there in that evening. And across the way, what happens is the camp of the Philistines uh, would, would hear the shouts of the people and all this commotion, and they ask themselves, what's going on over there? And they learn that the ark has come into the Israelites. And here's what it says in chapter 4. The Philistines were afraid, for they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. So they take and they they learn the ark of the Lord is there. And then they remember the Exodus story. They've heard about this Yahweh. They've heard about this God of the Israelites, the, the God of the covenant people. And instead of turning away or submitting to this Yahweh, what they say in chapter 4 verse 9 is, Take courage! Be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. You see, they remember the Exodus story. And this leads them not to repentance, not to uh, humble submission, but rather to dumb courage. To dumb courage. And what happens next leaves both the Israelites and the Philistines surprised. You see, what happens at the end of chapter 4 is they they win the battle and capture the ark. Israel receives this news and is devastating because what happens is it seems that the Lord has lost. You see, they lost the battle without the ark. They thought, let's get the ark, we'll win the battle, and then they lose the battle, and then they lose the ark. And what happens in chapter 5 was best described by Bill McComas a few weeks ago in a flurry of literary excellency where he says, the ark of the Lord became a hot potato in the cities of the Philistines, causing destruction and devastation in each city 
that it's placed. And so they take the ark back and they, uh, they, they, it humiliates their god Dagon uh, and they, they, they begins to cause plagues and mice and all these, uh, all these uh, destruction upon their city and they begin to move it from city to city. Until finally at the end of chapter 5 the people say, send it back. We don't want this anymore. We don't want this ark here. And so here we find in chapter 6 they're saying, let's send it back. So look with me at verse 2. The Philistines called for the priests and the diviners, or diviners, however you want to say that, and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what we shall send it to its place. And they said, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. They want to know, if, if we're going to send this thing back, if we're going to send this back to Israel, how should we do it? So they call their priests, they call their special men, these, uh, these wisdom folks and these type of mystic uh, who practice witchcraft and magic, and they say, how do we do this? And so we see the solution proposed in verse 4. And they said, what is the guilt offering we shall return to him? They answered, five golden tumors, and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and on all your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps, perhaps, he will lighten his hand from off of you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? So what we see is that these people, these, uh, these priests and diviners, they begin to come up with a plan. He said they must know something about this Yahweh because they have some semblance that like, okay, we're going to have to do something. Something's going to need to be provided, some kind of offering, some kind of sacrifice. We know we've taken the ark of the Lord, we've taken it from them, and so we somehow have to return that and somehow have to appease this God so that he will stop ravaging our lands. And so they say, take the, make these images of, of tumors and images of your mice. These were uh, what was affecting them. These images, golden images of the, the plagues that had come upon them. But all of this, but you'll, you'll notice in verse 5, is they're not sure if this will work at all. You see, in the previous chapter, we've been told that the hand of the Lord was heavy upon the Philistines. And here they're saying, well, perhaps, perhaps in verse 5, perhaps he will lighten his hand from off of you and your gods and your land. Now listen, this is interesting. Because in chapter 4, when they heard the ark of the Lord come into the, 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 the camp of the Israelites, they, they remembered the exodus. They remembered the plague. They remember what happened to Pharaoh. And they said, take heart. Fight like men. Only now they remember the exodus again. And they ask themselves a question, why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he, the Lord, dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away? He, he, the, the priests and the, the diviners are saying to the lords, the Philistines are saying to the people of Philistia, they're saying like, why would you do this? Like, send it away. As Pharaoh sent away the people of the Lord, send away the ark of the Lord, right? There's these themes of the Exodus. And this is the proper response, by the way. This is the proper response for the Philistines to hear and remember that the God of the Exodus is not a God to be trifled with. 
He's already humiliated their God, right? Remember beginning of chapter 5 when they, they put the Ark of the Covenant before uh, their, their God of Dagon. And what happens the first night? It just falls over in a, in a posture of bowing to the Ark of the Covenant. And so what do they do? They come in like, that's weird. And they stand it back up. And they're like, whew, God, that's fixed. And what happens the next night? Well, the next night, no, no accident uh, can be portrayed because this time their own God's hands and head are cut off. This was no mere accident. This was the Lord intervening and showing the Philistines that he is a greater God than all of their false idols, all of their false gods. He is more powerful than their God. And you'll notice that throughout this, throughout this section, the ark and the Lord say nothing. Samuel's nowhere to be found in chapters 4 through 6, four through six by the way. The reason is because the Lord is showing himself as powerful. He doesn't need the Israelites to fight on his behalf. Listen, he doesn't need you and I to fight on his behalf. And so they, they come here at the end of verse 6 and they say, um, didn't send them away. Shouldn't we send the Ark of the Covenant away? And then they say this, chapter 7, this, this, uh, this mix of human ingenuity and superstition. And they say in verse 7, Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke, and, co- and yoke the cows to the cart. But take their calves home, away from them, and take the ark of the Lord, place it on the cart, and put it in a box at its side, the figures of gold, which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way, and watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Bashemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. So they come up with this plan. You see, at this point, they're still not sure. Is Yahweh real? We've heard of the Exodus, but maybe that was an accident. Maybe all these plagues, all these tumors that's come upon us, perhaps this is coincidence, perhaps this is accident. And so they said, we'll test them. We'll test the Lord. They say, take, take two milk cows that had never been yoked, never carried a burden before. And put the ark on, 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 on that cart and, and have them go whichever way it wants to go. And they say, if the ark returns to Beshemes, if it returns to the covenant people of God, well, then, of course, we know it was the Lord. It was his hand that was heavy upon us. But if not, well, then this whole thing has just been one giant coincidence, one giant accident. But there was another thing in there as well. I don't know if you caught it. It was these milk cows on which there had never come a yoke. Put the cart on them, but do more than that. Take the calves of those cows and take them to their home. You see, the natural inclination for these cows would have been to return to their calves. The natural instinct of nature is to return to its own, to return to its young. And so what we have here is this testing of the Lord that is almost reminiscent of, of, of uh, the story on, on Mount Carmel where, they, where uh, Elijah is just dousing the offering in water justice of the Lord can burn it up. So what happens? What happens? We see the resolution in verse 10. So the men did this. They took two milk cows, yoked them to the cart, and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart in the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beshemesh. They had never been there before. Their calves are back at home, and here these cows are going in the direction a Beshemesh, along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left. And the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beshemesh. 
Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The ark came into the field of Joshua at Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there, and they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was inside it, beside it, in which there were golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. So what happens is that they are clearly seeing this is of the Lord. These plagues that are upon us, the same plagues that probably reminiscent of the plagues in the wilderness, these same plagues have come upon us, and it's not just by accident, it's not just by chance, but it is the hand of the Lord that has done these things to us. They see it. These cows should have not returned and should have not went to Beshemesh, but there they went showing that the Lord was in control. So what's the summary to this? The, the, the Philistine's summary is this. The Philistines cannot stand before the Lord. Who can stand before the Lord? Not them. Not their false god. God is more powerful than their cunning traps and their trickery, than their tests. Yahweh is more powerful than Dagon. And we see that they cannot stand before the Lord. You see in verse 17 it says, These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord, one for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelot, one for Gath, one for Ekron. And the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. This great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua Beshemesh. And so the people of Philistia learned God is powerful. He, he is not to be trifled with. He's not to be messed with. They had never seen anything like this. And so they sent him away. But that's not the end of the story here. Look at verse 21. Or sorry, verse 19. And he, the Lord struck some of the men of Beshemesh. We said, wait, wait, wait a minute, aren't these the people of God? Isn't, isn't these the covenant people of God, God's chosen people? Yes. He struck some of the men of Beshemesh. Why? Because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. Now, depending on your translation, this text verse, it either says 70 men or 50,070 men, right? It doesn't really matter which, the, which one it is, but what we find is that he struck, uh, so he struck some men of the city of Beshemesh, peoples, God's own people. He struck them, and the people mourned. Why? Because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. And then we find this question we've been asking ourselves all morning. The men of Beshemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? You see, what we find in Beshemesh is people who uh, disobey God's commands and not look upon the ark. They did it. He struck them dead because they were acting like Philistines. Then he, 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 he killed them. And they say, who, who is able to stand before this Lord, this holy God? And what we find is that these people want to send the ark away from them just as the people 
and Philistia did. They, they wanted to send the ark of God away. So we find in verse 21, they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kirajerim, saying, the Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Benadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eliezer to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From that day, that the ark, from the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And so we must ask ourselves, who can stand before the Lord? And what we find is that God's covenant people cannot stand before the Lord. You say, well, Pastor, what's the point in this story? Why is this story here for us today? It's to remind us that God is holy. Do you remember uh, Hannah's song in chapter 2? I said, and when we preached through that, I said that this psalm, this song, or this prayer of Hannah's in chapter 2 would become like the theme of the entire book of Samuel. And what you find there in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 2, the first line of that prayer, the first line of that song is this. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Exodus fifteen eleven. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Deuteronomy 3.24, this is uh, Moses before the Lord. He's getting ready to be told he can't enter the promised land. He says this, O Lord God, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? The point of the story and the lesson that we need to learn is that God is holy. He is utterly separate from us. The question that is asked in this text, who can stand before the Lord? You notice that the text doesn't answer that for you? It does, but it answers it in story form. It's told you that the Philistines can't, Dagon can't, uh, the, the, the people of Israel can't stand before the Lord. And what we find is that no one is able to stand before the Lord. We live in a day and age which makes little of God. So many people in the church today have such a small view of God and such a large view of themselves or of man. And what I want to give you today, what's changed my world uh, over the last couple of years, is just to know how big God is. You see, if we uh, come to stories in the scripture where God uh, slays people, what's our first gut reaction? Honestly, if we're honest with ourselves, when we read stories of God slaying folks in the Old Testament... What's our first gut reaction? Oof. How am I going to explain that one to my friends? Or oof. Thank God we're in the New Testament. The reason that that is our first instinct, our first reaction, the reason we react that way to those stories is because we have such a small view of God. Such a small view of our sin. Only when we know how holy God is will we truly understand how how massive of a problem we actually have. Flip over to Isaiah chapter 6. Probably the hallmark text on God's holiness. This is Isaiah 
And this is what it says in verse 1 of Isaiah chapter 6. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy. There's uh, R.C. Sproul, the great uh, theologian, said this. He says, No other attribute of God is ever ever raised to the third degree. You will find nowhere in Scripture where God is said to be loving, loving, loving. There's nowhere in Scripture where you will find God to be saying, uh, merciful, merciful, merciful. Faithful, faithful, faithful. He is all of those things. But only one point in all the Scriptures do you ever find uh, one attribute that rises above all the other attributes of God. And it's holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And listen, at that, at that proclamation, here's what the text says, the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of Him who called. Stones and inanimate objects had enough sense in the presence of God to tremble when they heard of God's holiness. What should the implication be for us? Will we meander or casually stroll into God's presence? Isaiah's response was, he said, Woe is me. For I am lost or undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You see, when Isaiah stood before the King of hosts, when he sees the Lord high and lifted up, when he sees the Lord in all of His majesty, in all of His glory, he realizes how lost and sinful of a man he really is. I am undone. I am unraveled. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Your sin paid for by another. You see, friends, you and I will not casually stroll into the presence of God on our own. The question in our text this morning is, who can stand before a holy Lord? And the answer is, none of us. None of us. Do you realize this? Do you understand this? Do you have this big of a view of God that no sin will enter His presence? So then what do we do? What can we do? God is so holy, so unlike us, so adamantly set against us, that Paul would say that we are enemies of God, all of us. You say, well, not me. Yes, by nature you are an enemy of God. You are a child of wrath. So what do we do? You see, the story in, Isaiah, in 1 Samuel chapter 6 is all about uh, misunderstanding who God really is. The Philistines uh, misunderstood who he is and the covenant people of God misunderstood who he was and they paid for it with their lives. 
When I talk to folks, I talk to folks all the time who say, well, you know, I, you know, I'll just take this up with the Lord. I'll just take this up with God one day. When I get to heaven, I'm going to ask the Lord, no, you won't. You don't understand God. R.C. Sproul, again, he was asked one time, he says, why should, uh, why, 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 if, if you just commit one little sin, why is the punishment everlasting torment, everlasting destruction, everlasting damnation? One sin, think about it, one sin in a moment is enough sin to eternally separate you from God. Why is that? How can one sin be so bad? To which R.C. Sproul replied, What's wrong with you people? You don't understand God. You don't understand His holiness. If you did, then you would understand that, that one sin is enough to eternally separate us from God. You say, Pastor, this feels heavy. It is heavy. And it's true. So many people are dying every day, lost and stepping into an eternity without the blood of Christ to be eternally separated from Him. They haven't heard the good news. Perhaps you haven't accepted the good news. They say, well, what's the good news? This is all, all bad news. I'm glad you asked. Hebrews 10 says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain that is through His flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You see, you and I will only stand in the presence of God. Who can stand before the Lord? Not you, not me. Not the covenant people of God, not Israel, not the, the Philistines, not his enemies. Who can stand before uh, the Lord? There's only one answer. That's Jesus Christ. That's why I had Psalm 24 read this morning. Let me read it for you again. It says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. And if you think like, yeah, I got clean hands and pure heart. No, you don't. Who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him. Who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates. And be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come. And you see, this psalm is not talking about you and I somehow mustering up enough, enough righteousness to enter into the kingdom of God, to enter into His presence. This is a psalm is about one man only. Who will stand in the holy place? This psalm answers for you. You see in verse 7 of this psalm, it says, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. John, writing in Revelation, Similar 
stands. He said, I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and look into it. And then one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, here it is again, worthy are you to open, to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Friends, when you understand how holy God really is, it changes everything. Everything. Think about it. When you understand how holy God is, you, uh, the way that you view sin in your life and the process by sanctification in your life changes Right? No longer are you going to be okay with sin in your life. When you realize how holy God is, you will want to put to death every sin and every, uh, everything that holds you back from Him. When you understand how holy uh, God really is, then there, for you there is no such thing as casual worship. There can't be. In Revelation, every time the Lord is presented, what do you find? You find the, 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 the four and twenty elders, they fall down on their faces and worship Him. Listen, that's the proper response. That's the proper response for, for all of us. When you understand how holy God really is, the way you view your life as service to Him changes. You see, we need a big view of God in our church. We need a big view of God in our lives. Because he really is that big. It's only only when we begin to make God small that we become okay with sin. It's only when we uh, we make uh, God to to be small are we we lackadaisical in our worship. It's only when we make God small that we, we view our lives as nothing. We're just here to have a good time, Pastor. You don't understand God. How holy he is. Who can stand before the Lord? Jesus Christ can. And then for all of those of us who are in Christ, if you've accepted Jesus' sacrifice for you, then then you can stand before the Lord. And as Ananias and Sapphira found out that just because you're in Jesus doesn't mean that there aren't consequences to pay for when you sin. So many of us view sin in our lives as like, well, it's just under the blood, Pastor. You You know, Jesus forgives all. That's true, he does. Sometimes there's consequences for the way in which we sin in our lives. Ananias and Sapphira at the beginning of the church movement are examples of that for us today. I wonder where you've been lackadaisical in your worship of God. Is it because you've forgotten how big and how holy this God really is? 
I wonder if you've viewed your, your life as service to him and you've like disengaged from evangelism, disengaged from the church, disengaged from telling other people, disengaged from reading the Bible. Have you forgotten how big our God is? He is not a God to be trifled with, friends. Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? The answer is Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. Lord, I pray that you would open our minds to categories of understanding you as being a large God. A God who does not take sin lightly. A God who loves us so much that he sent his son to die for us. Lord, we make cheap the blood of Jesus when we return to the same sins in our life that you died to set us free from. So Father, I pray that you would give us a big view of God every day, not just on Sundays, but throughout the week. You would understand how big you are. Then we would take courage, as the author of Hebrews said, take courage and draw near to you. No longer in fear. No longer as children of, of wrath, but as sons and daughters of the King. Oh, let us know these truths to be true. Let us be changed by them. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand? We're going to sing. Turn your eyes upon Jesus.